in our existence. And so we talked about stress uh, and how we can deal with that. All of us have had stressors at some point. Uh, we talked about failure and how we, we cope with that. And today we're going to talk about a particular topic that we don't often name, but I think is still an underlying desire for most of us. And then that is this idea of wanting to, to live above the average. Isn't that true for most of us? We don't want to just be an average person. You know, there's 8 billion people on the face of the earth at this moment. Um, we don't want to be like the 8 billion. We, we want to rise up a little bit. And I don't think it's so much a matter of, of conceit or things like that. It's just we want to be known as being a little bit unique. Um, and it can be a little easy to lose sight of that when you're in the midst of, of a lot of other individuals. In fact, this desire, this, this need for us, I think, to, uh, to be seen as unique starts at the youngest of ages. If you've had children or been around nieces or nephews or grandkids, uh, I'm sure all of you can think of moments when they were out on the playground or they were maybe in your backyard or maybe even in your house, and they did something, and what was it that they said? Look at me. Look at me. And they'll wave their hand and they'll smile, and, um, and of course, it's fun to do that because you you love them dearly, but that's part of how we're wired. We want there to be some kind of attention that, that's drawn to us. And in fact, I think if you were to look to the writings of, of sociologists and psychologists, they would tell you not only is that a want that we have, it's actually a need for us. It's a part of how we develop a sense of confidence. It's a part of, of how we acquire that self-identity and of self-worth that we all need. And if we don't get that in normal, healthy settings... Uh, then we see it um, exhibited in other ways. For the youngest of kids, we'll see them act out, um, and I'm sure we've all been around that from time to time. But it doesn't just end uh, in those younger elementary years. That need to be above average we see lived out as we continue on in life. And as you get to, to grade school or middle school or even into to high school, um, we try to find ways that we can can be identified a little bit above the, the rest. And so maybe we'll, we'll commit ourselves to trying to excel in academics, or maybe we'll get involved in sports, or maybe we'll uh, be in the choir or in the band. Maybe we'll get involved in, in student government, something that will help us have a little bit of a niche for ourselves. If we don't find it in that, then we might pursue a little bit more destructive direction. And so we get involved with gangs, or uh, maybe we uh, get uh, caught up in, in uh, partners that that uh, participate in some kind of criminal activity because at least it gives us an identity. Uh, sometimes we see promiscuity come about as a result of this need that's there. And if you're not able to get it through those means and you've tried everything else, well, then we try to dull the sensation. We dull it through drugs or we dull it through alcohol, other ways that, that keep us from, from feeling like we just uh, don't amount to anything. And in the most drastic of situations, if those things don't play out, then what we see is people blame others for that feeling of, of uh, not worthlessness, but certainly not um, being recognized or appreciated or understood or liked. And as you hear the reports and, and read the incidents or see it on the news far too often, that's the thing that, that's the impetus that leads uh, these young people to, to do school shootings or even adults to do shootings in their workplace. So how can we as Christians, as believers, um, uh, find that niche where we, we know that we aren't just a part of the, the crowd where we are above average? Well, let me just begin by saying that, uh, folks, if you don't already know that, you are above average. 
absolutely above average. Why? Because you're a child of God. You were created in your mom's womb, and God put pieces together there that makes you unique uh, among not only the 8 billion people that are alive today, but all of the other people that have existed throughout history. There's never been another one like you. There's not another one on the face of the planet like you. There will never be another one like you. And so if you don't take anything else away from our time this morning, I hope you remember that, that you are special in God's eyes. You are unique in his ways. But aside from that, how else can we know that we're, we're above average? How can we, we, we know that we have that unique uh, standing? Well, if you really want to be above average, one of the things that you could do is you could go live in a place called Lake Wobegon. Um, if uh, you're older, you know of a guy named Garrison Keeler. He used to have this, this radio show called Prairie Home Companion. And he would, every week, talk about this, this place called Lake Wobegon in Minnesota. And there was always a byline that went with this, and he would say this every single week. Uh, Lake Wobegon was a place where all of the women are strong, all of the men are good-looking, and all of the children are above average. So if you want to be above average, that's a place you can go, or you can try to go because, of course, it's a mythical place, so you're never really going to find it. So, uh, so what is another option that we can look to? Well, as is always the case, uh, we can look to God and see what he has to say and what his word points us to in regards to that. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do that as we look to the book of 1 Chronicles. And so if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn that, grab the Pew Bible in front of you. Uh, if you've got a Bible app, you can turn to that as well. We're going to be looking at 1 Chronicles, the fourth chapter, verses 9 and 10. 1 Chronicles, the fourth chapter, verses 9 and 10. Um, and we're going to be reading about a person named Jabez. I have some thoughts about Jabez that I'll share with you in just a moment. But let's, let's lead, read this text as we come upon it, First Chronicles 4, 9 and 10. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. His mother had named him Jabez, saying, I gave birth to him in pain. So the word Jabez actually literally means pain. Now, I don't know of any mother who didn't give birth to pain. So, so that fact in and of itself wasn't unique, which would lead us to suggest or believe that, that whatever pain Jabez's mother experienced was, was way above the norm. Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you may bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm, so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. One of the things that's unique about Jabez is this is the only time we read about Jabez. Two verses, five sentences, that's it. Um, and I have to tell you, over the years, I've, I've been resistant to talk much about Jabez, not because I have anything against Jabez, um, but because of a, a, an event that happened back in about 2000, there was this explosion um, of focus on Jabez that grew out of a, a book that was written called The Prayer of Jabez. And, and what was a little bit um, disturbing to me was, was how much was made of these two verses ab about this guy. Um, and, and so uh, there was this huge backstory that was, was generated and all of the other things that, that went along with that, which, which was a, a, a fascinating read, I guess, but it exegetically wasn't very sound. Um, and so I, I sort of rebelled, as a few other uh, leaders did, against that and, and really have not had much to say about Jabez. In fact, this is only, I think, the second time I've ever talked 
about Jabez in, in a church setting. But as I thought about it um, over the years, I, I came to realize that, that I really, in that process, kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, the reality is, is that for some reason, of all of the people that have lived, God decided Jabez was someone that, that deserved a special attention and was given to that in his word. And so what I want to do is just spend a few moments this morning looking at Jabez, looking at some of the things connected uh, with his, his life, um, so that we might find uh, through him uh, perhaps how we can view ourselves, because we already are, but view ourselves as individuals who are ab- above average in our world. If we look to the life of Jabez, one of the things that stands out most immediately is that Jabez was a very ambitious individual. That 10th verse summarizes pretty well. He said, Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. That seems like a pretty bold statement to me to come before God. And, um, and yet that's the thing that came out of his mouth. It seems, in fact, sort of in opposition to this idea of humility, which we read about so often in Scripture. So it sort of calls to mind that idea or that question, is it Christian to be ambitious? If we're called to be a people who are humble, can we, in fact, be ambitious as followers of Christ? And my answer to that is really it, it, it kind of depends. It depends on, on who it is that we're trying to please. It depends on where our focus is. If we look at this word in, in uh, the definition in Scripture about ambition, ambition is something that's there that focuses the attention and credits the success that we enjoy to God. Now, that's not the way the world defines ambition. Uh, When I looked it up online in the dictionary there, it says, ambition is an intense drive for success or power, a desire to achieve honor, wealth, or fame. And typically that wealth or fame isn't on somebody else, it's on us. We want to be identified. We want to be acknowledged. We want to be praised. We want to be uh, uplifted. And so as we think about this idea of being ambitious and being a Christian, again, it goes back to where is our focus? If, as we think about this, our desire is to impress others, then it's not a good thing. In Galatians, the first chapter, the 10th verse, we read these words. Am I now trying to win approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And and I don't think he's saying here that he wouldn't choose to be a servant of Christ. I think he's saying he couldn't be a servant of Christ. It would be in opposition to what it means to be a follower. There there would just be kind of almost a mutual exclusivity to that. Scripture tells us so um, clearly in so many other places, we can't serve God and serve other things as well. We have to make a choice. That's been true throughout history. I think it's especially true in our world today. Jesus echoes that kind of sentiment with his own words in John 5, when he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Our hearts, our focus, our attention, our desire is to, to do that which is pleasing to him. Be ambitious, yeah, but be ambitious for God not to impress others. Well, what happens if we're we're there to try to make ourselves look good? Uh, Again, it's not a a good way that we should be viewing ambition. In Philippians 2.3, Paul tells us, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He's not saying don't be ambitious. He's saying don't have selfish ambition connected 
to that. And it's clear as we look to Scripture, and especially to the life of Christ, that we see not only in his teachings, but in the life that, that he modeled, um, that we're here on earth for a particular goal, for a particular reason. The purpose for that is not to be spent focusing on ourselves or building ourselves up, but we are called to exalt someone, and that someone, of course, is God, which moves us uh, to the next one. Um, if ambition is connected with pleasing God and bringing Kim glory, then it's a great thing for us to be focusing on. So can we be uh, humble and be ambitious? Can we be Christian and be ambitious? Absolutely, if our focus is on God. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, it says this, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, uh, to be pleasing to him, to be pleasing to God. First Thessalonians gives us a similar thought in the second chapter, the fourth verse. We speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel because we're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. So again, we can be ambitious. We can uh, pursue those things as long as the focus, the attention is pointed toward God in the midst of that. And so to kind of summarize that, what we discover is our ambition that's there is to glorify God Again, as Paul would word it in Colossians 3.23, he says, whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Be ambitious about it. Give it your best as working for the Lord and not for men, including ourselves. So one of the first things that we note is that uh, Jabez was an ambitious individual. And I think if, if we want to find um, our, our niche in society that sort of uh, sets us apart a little bit, we'll be ambitious for God. Commit yourself to doing his uh, things. To, uh, commit yourself to, uh, to living lives that focus on him. Uh, so get involved in, in learning more about God, talking to God, listening to God, um, studying God, coming to worship service. Uh, do whatever it is that, that draws you into a deeper relationship with him. And as you do that, I guarantee you uh, that you'll find yourself um, uh, standing out. If, if by no other means, uh, God's sight, but I think you'll... Notice that in the eyes of the world as well. Second thing that we see about Jabez is that he had high confidence in God. He had a lot of faith and trust in God. Again, in that 10th verse, it says this, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. I don't think Jabez would have lifted up this prayer if he didn't believe that it, it was something that God could actually uh, realize, God could actually do or accomplish. You know, as I've been a pastor for quite a number of years now, and I've, I've looked at individuals that I've encountered, Christians, whether inside my churches or just other settings, I've seen people kind of, when they go to prayer, deal with prayer in one of three ways. The first way is that people will pray, but they don't really believe that God's going to answer the prayer. Now, they pray because it's what Christians are supposed to do, isn't it? Uh, they pray because that's sort of the ritual that we've been, we've been trained with. We're supposed to offer those words up to, to God. But as far as that heartfelt conviction that God can actually do that, I don't think the people have that too many times. Uh, a second thing that we see is that there's those that, uh, that uh, don't just pray, but they demand that God answer their prayer. It's part of what I have seen referred to as the, the name it and claim it gospel or the prosperity gospel, that I, I deserve it, I've, I've earned it, God owes me. And so when I go to prayer, I demand that he answer my prayer because 
After all, isn't that why God's there to, to serve us, to, to meet our needs? Which I hope you know is not the case. And then there's a third way, which I think is the way that Jabez approached this, and I would suggest it's the way that we should be approaching God as we come to, to prayer as well. And um, it could be summarized with this. I have no doubt that God absolutely can answer my prayer, but I trust him to respond in the way that is best for his kingdom and for my life. Let me say that again. I have, ab- I have no doubt that God absolutely can answer my prayer, but I trust him to respond in a way that is best for his kingdom and for my life. And so we pray, we pray expectantly, we, we pray trusting that God can, can do whatever it is that we're praying for, but also acknowledging that, that he's God and we're not, that his wisdom far exceeds ours, that his timing is always perfect. And so we, uh, we relinquish that to him, uh, trusting that he'll do, again, what's best for his kingdom and for our lives as well. And I think that's the kind of prayer that, that Jabez has lifted up here, a prayer uh, filled with faith and with confidence, a faith that God would hear his prayer, a faith that, uh, that he knew that nothing was impossible for God to accomplish. And it's interesting, as, as we look to this, we, we discover, and again, very limited um, information given about Jabez, but there's nothing said in these two verses that would suggest to us that Jabez was an exceptional individual. Nothing said that he's particularly wise or intelligent, that he'd uh, been very successful in business, that he was a, a great leader. There's nothing to suggest that, that in and of himself um, he could accomplish or, or, or deserve these kinds of things. In fact, it's, it's a little bit interesting that if you go down to the latter part of that 10th verse, he says, all of these things so that I will be free from pain. And scholars, and, and I would include myself in this, um, have wondered throughout the ages, does this mean that, that there was something unique about Jabez that, that had filled his life with pain? Uh, maybe Jabez was a, an individual that was born with a disability, or maybe he grew up with asthma, maybe he acquired migraines later in life, or, or struggled with arthritis. We don't know, it's not told to us, but the, the fact that that's a particular part of his prayer, that he would be set free from pain, certainly doesn't seem unreasonable to think that maybe pain was a regular part of his life. And if it was, if there was this hardship, this limitation in his life, then, then what that says to us is that Jabez recognized from the very outset that there's nothing in his own effort, in his own work, in his own personality, and his own skills that was going to deserve this request that he lays before God. That he totally and completely is turning that over to God. That yes, he wants to rise above, he wants to, uh, to be above average, but, uh, but as he does that, he does it in a way that puts faith in God who is above average, not in himself. It sort of reminded me of a movie I, I saw uh, growing up uh, back in, in the early 2000s, a movie entitled uh, My Bodyguard. Um, now, there's a lot of uh, bodyguard movies out there um, uh, with uh, Kevin Costner and, and other individuals. Um, this one was, I think, preceded most of them, maybe all of them. Um, and it was a story of a, of a young boy named Clifford. Uh, Clifford was a little bit of a kind of a dweeby individual. He came to a new high school, um, and because he was a little bit of a, of a nerdy, dweeby person, he got beat up a lot. Um, people were always picking on him. They were just beating him up for the fun of it. They were taking his lunch money. Life was not very fun for Clifford. But while Clifford was maybe a little bit on the dweeby side, 
Clifford wasn't dumb. And so he came up with this plan on, on how life could be better for him, and that plan was to hire the biggest bully in the school to be his bodyguard. Thus, the name of the, the movie. And so as the, the movie unfolds, you, you see them with a rocky start in terms of relationship, but as you would anticipate, uh, they go through a number of adventures and end up becoming uh, very good friends at the end. But I raise this just to highlight the fact that, that I think for, uh, for Clifford there, he did have that expectation that, that he would rise above the average that he wouldn't have to worry about being beat up anymore like so many of the other kids still were, that he wasn't going to have to have his, his lunch money stolen as so many else were. But his faith and confidence wasn't in himself. It was in the one who stood beside him, Ricky in the case of the movie. Folks, I think that same thing is true for us, that we have one that stands beside us. Now, I'm not by any means implying that God is a bully or as our bodyguard, but the message I am trying to say is, that we have one that's there for us. Whatever the circumstances or, or, or situations in life to help us, uh, to help us live that full life that, that we would desire, that life that uh, really is one that puts us a little bit above average. So we see that, that we look at this life of Jabez, we see one who is ambitious. We see life, uh, one who is a great confidence of God. And then we see by implication uh, an individual um, who I would say was in a very good relationship with God, with a, a right relationship with God. And, and we're given two clues that sort of point us that direction. Uh, the first one is in this uh, latter part of ninth and 10th verse. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. More honorable. Now, of course, uh, all of that sort of hinges around how honorable were these brothers. If these brothers were just thugs, then being more honorable just means you were, you were not as bad as the rest of the people. But, but the implication that that was not the case, that Jabez's brothers were honorable themselves. And so he was sort of the, uh, the, the top of the pecking order. He was the, the best of the best. He was a man who, whose life was marked by honor. And the second thing that suggests to us he was in a right relationship with God was the fact that God granted his request. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and if you continue on through 10, and God granted his request. We know that God is sovereign. We know that God can, can choose to bless whoever he wants to bless. We know scripture tells us that the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. But we also know as we look throughout uh, Scripture that most of the time the general rule is that God doesn't uh, particularly bless those who are doing or living lives contrary to God's will. Now, sometimes people, based on their own natural abilities or skills or talents, uh, can still have a, a prosperous life. But when it comes to God divinely intervening, uh, supernaturally kind of imposing blessing, he tends to limit that more to those individuals who are followers of his, that are, that are walking, that are living in accordance with his will. That doesn't mean that they have to be perfect. It just means that they have to turn their eyes toward him. And so we think of people like Moses and Esther and Jacob and Peter and Mary and Paul and so many other individuals. Were their lives perfect? <laughs> Far from it. But they were committed to being followers of God. And so God blessed them. And if that, that presumption is true, then it seems likely that, that Jabez not only embodied God-honoring skills and qualities and traits, I would suspect he was one who was honest and compassionate and that he lived a life that was just. 
uh, that he was a man whose heart truly was aligned with God. I think we can presume that, that he had a, a life that was in sync with that, but also a life that avoided embodying those qualities that stood in opposition to the things of God. And again, I, I'm, I'm trying not to read too much into this text, given that there's just a couple verses there. But as we think about those things that, that too often uh, steer us away from God, um, the list is very long that does that, but there's, I think, sort of three things that we, if we had to lump them together in categories or, or look at those three things that are sort of the top of the list, I think there's three things that we could think about. One of the things that distances us from God is this whole issue of unconfessed sin. In Psalm 66, 18, it says this, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Now, we know that sin comes in a variety of different forms. Uh, it evidences itself in a lot of different ways. There's greed, there's envy, there's gossip, there's hatred, there's lying, there's prejudice. And then there's the ones that we think are the really big ones, things like murder and, and those kinds of things. But all of those distance us from God. Even the ones that have sadly have become more and more acceptable in our society today. And that, and that list of acceptable sins in our culture, uh, in this world, is one that increases almost on a daily basis. God doesn't want us to live lives where we, where we embrace those as a normal part of our existence. In fact, we may not think that we're worshiping these things, but the, the fact that we've become comfortable with them like the rest of our society has, and the fact that they don't um, sit poorly with us anymore would suggest to us that we've allowed them to come and, uh, become an everyday part of our lives, that there's some kind of importance that we place there. There's a second thing that, that happens, and I think in addition to unconfessed sin, that sometimes we operate under ungodly motives, ungodly motives. In the book of James, the fourth chapter, the third verse, it says, when you ask, ask and hear of God, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, motives that tend to focus on us. You see, uh, most of us live our lives trying to do those things that make us happy, that are fulfilling or rewarding to us, maybe that are the answer to our bucket list. And those are not inherently bad, except when they're in opposition to what God's will would be. His good, pleasing, and perfect will, as the Scripture talks about. And so we need to make sure the lives that we live are in sync with, with what God wants first and foremost. And then almost always we find that, that, that the blessings that come in life come as we focus on Him, and God gives us a sort of a byproduct of that. And then the third thing that we too often see is that there's idol worship in our lives. Now, not idol worship in the sense that we see in the Old Testament where they've, they've got these Asherah that are kind of like totem poles or, or where they're doing uh, uh, bowing down or having these temples of different things. We don't have that kind of worship in our life, but there are still things uh, that we worship uh, that we should not. In fact, there are things that we not only worship, but we sacrifice to. You think, oh, sacrifice? We don't do any sacrifice anymore. Pastor Brett, well, think about what are those things that are most important in your life today. For the average person, um, one of those things is time. Uh, we uh, view time as a very precious commodity in our lives today. And it's interesting that, that sometimes uh, in our lives we will wrestle with, uh, you know, do I really want to get up early to do those devotions well, I had a late night last night, or there was a great game on that I watched, and I, I stayed up too late watching that. I mean, it's, it's, I'm really going to be tired when I get up in the morning, and so we don't. And yet, 
when it comes to doing those things in our hobbies on the weekend, maybe it's fishing, maybe it's going golfing, maybe it's uh, playing in a, some kind of a sports league, maybe it's sewing or those kinds of things. Boy, we never seem to have trouble doing that. We're willing to get up at the crack of dawn and, and, and head out for a, a one or two hour drive. And so in that act, we've given those other things a, a kind of a role of something that we worship. Second thing that we, we tend to sacrifice toward is this whole idea of money. It's interesting that we'll struggle as Christians. We, we hear about a special offering that's been taken for a, a, a mission's need, whether it be in our own country or, or, or faraway lands. Or, or we struggle whether to, to contribute to a, maybe there's a, a youth camp that's coming up that, that would allow kids to, uh, to go to a, a summer Christian camp. We struggle with, with what to give on, on those kinds of things. But when we hear about this offer for a, a, an enhanced cable TV package, Whoa, there's no doubt about that one. That's got all of the sports channels on it or all of the Hallmark channels on it or whatever it is that, that's your particular niche. And what we end up doing really is, is worship things of the world as opposed to things of God. And so my hope is, um, as we wrap things up here, uh, that you'll realize that God has made you in an extraordinary way, that, that you are precious in His sight and that he, He's given us ways to to know that, that we are individuals who are above the average. We're above the average because we're sons and daughters of the, the Most High. We're, we're above the average because we, we've found to live our lives in a way that, that allows that ambition to be used toward God. We've loved, we're above the average because we don't fall into this trap of worshiping the things of the world. Let me wrap up with one last story and then I'll, I'll be done. Several years ago, there was an article in the uh, Chicago Tribune. Um, <clears throat> people don't read articles in the Chicago Tribune very much anymore because there aren't very many papers left anymore. But um, there was this article that was entitled, The Mystery of the Missing Owner. And in this article, it talked about this excess money that the state of Illinois had, $1 billion. Now, this billion dollars um, belonged to people who hadn't claimed it. What's interesting is they knew the names of these people, and they knew what their last address was, but despite their best attempts, they had not been able to track these people down to give the money. And, and the money came in the form of bank accounts that had uh, gone, um, had been closed out with no forwarding address. It had been for uh, things like, uh, so abandoned safety deposit box, uh, forgotten bank accounts, the security deposit checks that had never been cashed and cash paychecks, dividend checks, and so forth. A billion dollars had accumulated. Uh, they knew of 10 individuals, again, they know them by name, 10 individuals who were owed $100,000 or more. Uh, they knew of 113,000 people who were owed more than $100 or more. But they couldn't get the money to them. And we, and we hear that and in our mind and we're thinking it's such a shame that these people were, were unaware of that rightful treasure that was theirs. And yet, folks, that's exactly the kind of condition that we live in, too many of us as Christians. We don't take advantage of those promises that God has given to us as his sons and his daughters, the, the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, uh, the, these lives that we can have that are, are filled or to be filled with joy and peace. There's this treasure that's out there. We just don't seize it. And so may God help us to do that. 
May God help us to, to realize that we are people who are above average. God created us that way. May we seize those things that help us to live in that manner and to celebrate that, not by saying, look at me, but by saying, look at him. This day and every day. Amen.